Hey, thanks for checking out the So What Factor. My name's Randy Bennett. I'm a United Methodist pastor, and these sermons answer the question, I hope, so what? So what? Is God real? So what am I supposed to do with my life? So what does the Bible actually say? So in every sermon, it's my hope that you'll figure out what the so what is. But if you don't know, or it wasn't clear, feel free to find me on Facebook at Randy Bennett Jr., and shoot me a message. You can also email me at pastorrandybennett at yahoo.com. Be happy to hear your questions and, and, uh, and connect with you. So thanks for listening. Take care and God bless. Let us pray. Lord, when we come to consider your word, we come to take time to be holy to seek your face, to understand your grace, to apply who Jesus is to our lives and to grow in discipleship. And so I ask now, Lord, that you take the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart and make them wholly yours so that as we consider this word, we might consider um, those areas in our own hearts that need to grow, uh, those areas in our lives where our hands and our feet need to be more active in caring for others. So guide this conversation, Lord, these things I ask and I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome back to week four of our first sermon series on the Gospel of Luke entitled, What Shall We Do? I say first sermon series because um, as soon as we finish this season of Epiphany, we go into Lent, and that's where we're going to start our second sermon series uh, on the uh, Gospel according to Luke. The question of what shall we do is central to this first series on Luke because every story of Jesus invites us to ask the question fully, what shall we do in light of who Jesus is and what he has done? What shall we do? As we begin today's sermon, I offer this verse, familiar probably to a lot of you who've ever spent any deal of time with me at all, from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For God did not give us the spirit of fear, but the spirit of love and of power and of self-discipline. This is one of my favorite verses in Scripture, one of Randy's top ten, if you will. It served as a guide to me in my first pastoral appointment when I had to make some really tough decisions as a young pastor. It reminds me often, sometimes daily, that when times are scary and I am afraid, I do not have to make an important decision based upon fear. More importantly, it reminds me that operating in fear often leads to numerous bad decisions. Most importantly, it reminds me that when I allow fear to eclipse faith, I inevitably hurt others. Fear. Fear is powerful. I want you to listen very carefully now as I describe in detail what I believe fear can do. And then I'm going to ask you a question that is not rhetorical. In other words, I'm going to be looking for a response. Are you ready? Okay. And it's wordy. It's lengthy, so hang with me, okay? Fear 
leads to religious behaviors. Religious behaviors lead to an unintentional absence of love. When love is absent, healthy relationships die and are replaced by dysfunctional relationships. When multiple dysfunctional relationships align, they form a dysfunctional community. Dysfunctional community becomes rooted in the frantic fear that truth may be lost if additional agreed-upon rules and regulations are not religiously kept and followed. This is what we call religiosity. Religiosity asserts control over a dysfunctional community, propelling its members of that community to marginalize and then ostracize those who don't meet the regulations or who are unable to follow the rules, whether intentionally or unintentionally. The rules and the regulations then become the source of truth, which religiosity utilizes to perpetuate hate in the name of God against people who are different. The perpetuation of hate, which is ultimately born out of frantic fear, then further unites a dysfunctional community within its dysfunctional understanding of justice so that should unmerited love happen to appear, it can be quickly marginalized, then ostracized, and if necessary, killed. Why? Because love is to be feared if love asks a dysfunctional community to reconsider its understanding of truth. Now I know that was deep. I know there were a lot of words. I'm really bad at using a lot of words. I'm not going to make you suffer through me reading all of that again, though I did think about it. So I want you just to hear the very last part of that one more time. Love is to be feared if love asks a dysfunctional community to reconsider its understanding of truth. Thus, to a dysfunctional community, it is better to be right than to do the right thing. Now, wherever you are, I want you to answer this question aloud. Who am I describing? What group am I describing? So I read this very lengthy statement to several people this week. I didn't give them any context. I simply read this statement that I made, and I asked them the question, and here are two of the responses I received. I said, who am I describing? And the first answer I got was Christians. Christians. I asked somebody else, who am I describing? This person said, those that attacked the Capitol building on January 6th. 
Now, before I actually tell you who I am describing, I think it's important to stop for a moment and simply say, ouch. Brothers and sisters, it is painful for me to hear that someone thinks I am describing Christians. It's especially painful because this is the perception of an actual Christian about who Christians are in America. As Christians, I think we need to repent and come back to our first love, Jesus, and allow him to once again be seen brightly in his people by our love. But you know why it's especially painful to hear those answers? And hopefully you haven't just tuned me off or walked away from Facebook yet. Here's why it's really painful to hear those answers. Because the group I was describing were the Pharisees. The Pharisee. The Pharisees were the largest religious political party in Israel during Jesus' day. According to the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, the Pharisees voluntarily took upon themselves a strict regimen of laws pertaining to purity, Sabbath observance, prayer, and tithing. Ultimately, it was their goal to help keep the nation of Israel as close to God's law as possible. They wanted the Jewish people to be right with God in God's law, what we call the Old Testament of the Bible. And the Pharisees, y'all listen, the Pharisees believed that their interpretation of God's law, both the written and the oral traditions, was the right interpretation. Sadly, the Pharisees forgot that ultimately all of God's law could be summed up into two short phrases. Love God, love others. I share all this context with you for two reasons. One is while the Pharisees are the bad guys of the Gospels, it's really not that black and white. Is anything ever? And two... Not all the Pharisees were bad guys. Some would become disciples of Jesus, including probably their most zealous, the Apostle Paul. So what happened? What happened with these well-intentioned religious people? Well, love was replaced by fear. For it was better to be right than to do the right thing. Then the religiosity of the Pharisees sought to completely control the dysfunctional community that Judaism had become. Then it was rules and rules and more rules and more rules and more people became marginalized and more people then became ostracized because it was better to be right than do the right thing. And when I say rules, y'all, I mean they had some crazy rules, right? Like if you walk in the grass on the Sabbath, then you would bruise the grass, which would mean that you inadvertently harvested the grass, which means that you worked on the Sabbath. Sinner! You can't even walk on the grass. <laughs> then judgment would follow and the cycle would continue. Oh, and the Pharisees, the Pharisees loved their Sabbath rules. Boy, they loved their Sabbath rules. Apparently, they loved their Sabbath rules more than the one who made the Sabbath. 
And it was into this world and this worldview that Jesus, the enfleshed word of the living God, came among his people and he said to the Pharisees and he said to the scribes, knock it off. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Verse 6 of today's scripture lesson says, On another Sabbath, Jesus went into the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. See, the Pharisees had no doubt that Jesus could heal and perform miracles. They hated him for it. But the Pharisees, they were scared. They didn't like Jesus. They didn't like Jesus because they didn't like him breaking the rules to do the right thing. They were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus of being wrong. They already knew Jesus' attitude about the Sabbath, and the only reason they were in the synagogue that day was to accuse Jesus of being wrong. But Jesus, verse 8 says, knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. So the man got up and he stood there. See, Jesus literally knew what the Pharisees were thinking, and he addressed it openly in front of the entire synagogue, calling this man with the shriveled hand to stand up. By the way, verse 8 demonstrates that Jesus was in charge of the situation, not the Pharisees. The Pharisees may have come in order to try to trap Jesus, to find ways to accuse Jesus, but they were not in charge of the situation. Jesus was in charge of the situation. He was in charge of the situation before the foundations of the earth. He was in charge of the situation when he was in the cross. He was in charge of the situation when he was in the grave. And he was in charge of the situation when he rose from the dead. Jesus was in charge. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy it? Which is better, to be right or do the right thing? You see, failure to do good, to do the right thing when the opportunity presents itself, is choosing to passively commit evil. Another way of saying this word is to use it, the word complicit. For Jesus to do nothing when he has the power to heal would make Jesus complicit in the man's suffering. So Jesus could be right in the eyes of the Bible and do nothing, or Jesus could be wrong and do the right thing by loving the man. Verse 10 says, he looked around at them all and he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so and the man's hand was completely restored. Clearly, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. He was healed. Clearly, at least to God in the flesh, who is the living word, loving others is the right thing to do, even if it seems contradictory to other people's interpretation of Scripture. The Pharisees' mouths were full of Scripture, but their hearts were full of hate. What would they do? What would they do in response to Jesus? Verse 11 says, But they were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. What were they going to do? What shall they do? Their choice was to preserve their power 
their privilege, their interpretation of Scripture, and their dysfunctional community at all costs, even if it meant killing Jesus, the unmerited love of God in the flesh. Why? Because love is to be feared. If love asks a dysfunctional community to reconsider its understanding of truth. For the Pharisees, it was better to be right than to do the right thing. So what would Jesus do? WWJD, y'all remember that? <laughs> what would Jesus do? Jesus would do what he came here to do. Heal, preach, teach, and turn over the tables of religion in order to offer the whole world salvation through his unmerited love. And what about when they were killing Jesus? What would Jesus do then? Well, as he hung from the cross dying, and it appeared to the world that hate had won over love, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. A little while later, he said, it is finished. And Jesus' soul departed from his body and he died. His body was laid to rest in a new tomb. The two-ton stone that sealed to opening to the cave was closed. And then the Sabbath began. Interesting, isn't it? The Lord did all that work, and on the seventh day he rested. The seventh day, the Sabbath created by God for God's rest, is the very same day that the Lord of the Sabbath rested from his labor of salvation. And what happened after the Sabbath? Jesus got back up. He got back up and he continued redefining truth and he continued redefining love in the light of his grace because his love never fails. We knew what the Pharisees would do. We know what Jesus did. What about us? What shall we do? What shall we do? You know, clearly, as a people of God, we love God's written word. Sometimes our own fear of redefining truth in light of Jesus' love causes us to have a mouth full of scripture and a heart full of hate. We cite the Apostle Paul's words that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the child of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We'll quote that scripture and we think, well, all scripture is equal, isn't it? We think the words of Paul and the words of Leviticus and the words of Daniel and the words of Revelation are all the same, all equal, all used to condemn those who are different than us, those sinners. 
We forget that all of the Bible, which was written over the course of 1,500 years, the last passages of which were written almost 2,000 years ago, we forget that all of that is meant to be interpreted through Jesus. 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 That's what makes the Bible alive. Scripture is Scripture, but the Word of God is Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's just something about that name. Master, Savior, Jesus. Like the fragrance after the rain. Jesus, 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 let all heaven and earth proclaim. Kings and kingdoms will all pass away, but there's something about that name. Jesus. Friends, what shall we do? Let's do the right thing. Let, let's embody Scripture by loving Jesus as much as we possibly can. By loving others as much as we possibly can and allowing Jesus, the living word, to sort out the rest. And that's his word seriously considered this day for the Church of Christ community and all with ears to hear. All thanks and praise be to Jesus, our Lord, our Master, our Savior. Amen.